Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. We've got an amazing show for you today. We talk about the Board Ape Yacht Club. This is an NFT collection where you buy into it for a couple of Ethereum and then you get special features and club benefits. Well, we talked to Andrew Steinthal, who is a co-founder of a restaurant review site in New York called The Infatuation, uh, which also purchased Zagat in 2018, by the way. And he got in early on this craze, bought one of these NFTs for $9,000. Now he's sitting on a couple of hundred thousand dollars in NFTs of monkeys, of these bored apes. And uh, he explains to us the craze. And it's actually kind of fascinating. It's somewhere between collecting and speculating and gambling and uh, Soho House. Hard to explain, but we get into it. And I think it's a really important subject that we all have to get educated on because this company is producing hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue already in the first year of its existence from nothing, no investors. So, uh, and then in the second half of the show, our reporter, Rachel, interviews Nicole de Tommaso. And uh, Nicole is uh, somebody who broke into venture capital recently, working at Harlem VC. And she explained on Twitter how she did it with a pitch deck. So I sent Rachel out to interview her. It's a great interview. You're going to love it, especially if you're thinking, hey, how do I break into venture capital? So stick with us. This Week in Startups is brought to you by Squarespace. Turn your idea into a new website. Go to squarespace.com slash twist for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use offer code TWIST to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Our crowd helps you invest early in pre-IPO companies alongside professional VCs. If you're interested in investing, you can join our crowd for free at ourcrowd.com slash twist. And Belay. Get back to doing what only you can do, growing your organization, and leave the rest to Belay. Text TWIST to 55123 for a free ebook to learn how. Okay, everybody, in our first story, uh, the Bored Ape Yacht Club has gone supernova over <laughs> the last couple of months, and they are going to do a uh, sale with Sotheby's that could bring in uh, tens of millions of dollars. If you don't know about the Bored Ape Yacht Club, it is an NFT um, project where people can buy an NFT of an illustration of an ape. That has seven different features, um, the eyes, the hat, the mouth, earrings, background, all that kind of stuff. And uh, they're kind of like Beanie Babies or other collectibles. They were created by something called the Yuga Labs. Uh, and they have been one of the top five collections by volume traded on the NFT exchange OpenSea, which we had on the program. And I thought we'd have somebody on who is been part of the club uh, for a while. and. If you're part of the club, you basically make it your Twitter avatar, it seems. Uh, with us today, Andrew Steinthal. Did I get it right, Andrew? You nailed it. You nailed it. Okay. So you're uh, the co-founder of restaurant review site, The Infatuation? Correct. And you purchased Zagat in 2018. Congratulations on that. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Um, who owned that? Was that from Google you bought it or somebody was at, it had it in between Google? No, we, we acquired that directly from Google. Hmm. Uh, so you joined uh, and bought one of these NFTs. When did you buy your um, NFT for the uh, Board Ape Yacht Club? I got in probably about two and a half months ago. So it was and like, I sort of, how I looked at it was I missed the like 
friends and family round, barely missed the seed round, and then kind of got in as the Series A was just kicking off. <laughs> and so you became aware of it, I assume, because everybody on Twitter was changing their avatars into uh, well, these? What yeah, I mean, similar. What, what happened was, was that I got obsessed with NBA Top Shot. Mm -hmm. Like I was onboarded into Top Shot in January, saw the light of what NFTs could do from a tech standpoint and from the access standpoint and just was got really, really, really into it. And I think Top Shot sort of was the enabler to a whole world of other things. And so a lot of folks from the Top Shot world jumped on Board Apes as soon as that launched. Um, and I had watched it. I didn't. I hadn't minted another NFT yet um, outside of the Top Shot stuff at that time when Board Apes launched, but I was definitely paying attention to it and, you know, was flirting with getting involved. And then ultimately when it was like, all right, this is, this thing is for real, jumped on board. How, how much uh, did you pay for yours six weeks ago or 10 weeks ago, whenever you got it? I paid 4.3 ETH for mine, which at that time ETH was hovering around a little over two. Um, so it was, it was close to, it was like 8,000 bucks, 9,000 bucks. And my wife was like, what are you doing? You're insane. So you spent 9,000 US dollars on yes. essentially uh, what people would say is a GIF, just basically an image. But in fact, it's an NFT, which means it has some additional capabilities, including uh, that you can trade it and that it's on the blockchain. True. Yes, I did. Um, and what, what I found interesting was, you know, I think that the compare, the Beanie Baby comparison and the gift comparison are all like, yes, you can, you can make those comparisons. But I think when you start looking at it more as tokenized membership, um, when you own something, you get, you know, different kinds of access and different types of perks. And, um, when you start thinking about it outside of the JPEG is just the, you know, your membership kind of ID. So let's explain to people what that is. If you go to the website boardapeyachtclub.com, um, they explain that they uh, made 10,000 of these board apes that they initially cost 0.08 Ethereum to buy, which was a couple hundred bucks. They then got sold out. They all moved uh, to the secondary market. And one of the, I guess, the major secondary market for NFTs now is OpenSea. And they said the first thing you're going to be able to do with your membership is uh and they said basically here your board ape doubles as your yacht club membership card and grants you access to the members only benefits the first of which is access to the bathroom a collective graffiti board so you're going to be able to as a grown man with a job and a wife <laughs> take your nine thousand dollar nft and go into a website and write graffiti on a website is am i correct in summarizing the first benefit you will get from your uh nft i i guess so true yes. i have never once been in the in the bathroom um writing with graffiti there got it um now the upside to this um having to explain to your wife that you spent nine thousand dollars on a jpeg is that these are worth am i correct 50 ethereum now and ethereum is worth three or four thousand dollars uh as we're recording this on september 1st Accurate. 2021 Accurate. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's peaks and valleys, things go up and down. Um, but this has settled into a really solid range between 40 and 60 right now. Um, okay. As a floor. 
So it's worth over $150,000. So you're sitting there with an ape worth 150000 that you paid 9000 for. Uh, there is no, while there is a limit of supply with this, there is no telling when this could become a beanie baby and be completely worthless or there could be other things that people move on to. So what is your thinking currently sitting on, you know, a six-figure gain on your very savvy purchase? My thinking is that the world of Web3 blockchain and NFT coming together is transformative and Bay Area, sorry, Bay, this is, I'm on your show, so I'm thinking yeah. Bay Area, right? Yeah. Board Ape Yacht Club is one of the um, initial communities that has been built out around this monumental movement and change. And, mm. you know, if, if things keep going in this direction, it's going to be extremely valuable moving forward. And honestly, it's, it's something that's been really, really fun to be a part of. Um, I think the, that yes, it's a, it's an image. Yes, it's, uh, a JPEG. It's an NFT, all of that. But it, it's really been about the community, um, and been about being a part of this explosive growth of a whole new way of, you know, crowdfunding startups. Mm. Um, you know, and, and Yuga Labs, who you mentioned, who is the parent company of Board Apes, um, have been doing just an unbelievable job of adding value to their token holders. Um, mm. you know, one of the things that happened this weekend, right? Um, you know, so you mentioned there's only 10,000. Yes. That's board my Ape. understanding. Yeah. Yes. There's, there are 10,000 original Board Apes. Um, but you know, the price has gotten so crazy and you wind up having, Waka Flocka Flame and Steph Curry all joining the community and the price is Steph Curry bought one for a reported 160, 180,000. Right. And uh, so you're, you know, things keep going up and up and it makes that barrier of entry more difficult. But if this thing really needs to scale, it's going to need to be more inclusive in some capacity. Right. Mm -hmm. So what they did this past weekend, which set the set OpenSea and uh, the world of <laughs> Discord and Twitter on fire was they airdropped, um, and this is a big part of what this world of NFTs and adding value is about, is they airdropped for free to each token holder of an original board ape, what they called a serum, which is a basically chemistry class where you got dropped one of three different options. One was a M1, which there were 8,000 of or something, and one was an M2 that there were about 2,000 of, and then one that there was a mega that there were eight of. And... Uh, and you randomly serums. got one of the mutant serums. You randomly serums. got one, right? And the, the night that I received my serum, I was lucky I got one of the M2s. I could have flipped that for 30 ETH that night, right? Like $100,000 airdrop for free coming to my wallet. What do you do with the serum? You gave it to your serum? monkey and it evolved it or it made more <laughs> yes, monkeys? Yes, you, you, you give it to your monkey if you want to burn it and use it and you create uh, a whole new type of mutant monkey um that and your original happen. monkey's gone nope your original monkey stays nothing happens to your original wow monkey. so you so get, you get, a, you get a second mutant monkey that you can you then own or sell correct and this is not the first time they've done this they've also given dog like these things that were called doggos which are companions for your apes so those were airdrops for free that you know are added value and free money essentially if you want to flip it from websites and online stores to marketing tools and analytics, Squarespace is the all-in-one platform to build a beautiful online presence and run your business. 
With Squarespace, you know you can blog and publish content, you can promote your business, you can announce upcoming events or special projects, and you can sell products and services of all kinds and more. No matter what the problem, Squarespace is the answer. They have beautiful templates by world-class designers. That's kind of where they got started and everybody noticed them like, whoa, look at these beautiful uh, designs. But they've added so much functionality since that time, including powerful e-commerce functionality. And everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box. It's got built-in SEO, free and secure hosting, and of course, their 24-7 award-winning customer support. Back in 2020, we decided we'd create RemoteDemoDay.com for founders to pitch thousands of angel investors over Zoom. Well, we purchased the domain name RemoteDemoDay.com and had the site up and running within minutes. From idea to execution in just minutes and incredible functionality so you can grow with them and it's been a huge success for us so far i mean we've invested tens of millions of dollars i kid you not so go to squarespace.com twist for a free trial and when you're ready to launch use offer code twist to save 10 percent off your first purchase of a website or domain and congratulations to the team for going public on may 19th what an amazing journey it's been amazing to watch squarespace grow and become such a vibrant company and congratulations on that milestone so they're making the early buyers rich by giving them new um, airdrops, free items and collectibles. Yep. So this would be as if you bought a pack of baseball cards or a comic book, if, you know, I think we're both in the Gen X range. Um, and then Marvel Comics said to you two months after buying your comic book, by the way, we're sending you. Uh, a special edition of uh, Spider-Man called Venom, and you get it for free. And uh, we're going to send you a sidekick, and we're going to we're going to send you this, uh, you know, Teen Titans uh, comic book, and you just get free collectibles on top of it, just because you were early to the comic book collecting club. Exactly, um, and I think it's also about you know they've been doing some really cool collaborations for merch and you know things like that. They just did one with the hundreds that if you own an ape, you get access to. I've honestly like, I mean, I'm a person who. I'm a collector. I like, I like stuff. I'm sort of a hoarder ish. Um, but I also like, I haven't bought more merch from a specific thing than I have for board apes in the last, like, I mean, in the last four months, I've probably acquired four hoodies, two hats, three t-shirts. I mean, that hasn't happened since I was in high school and buying Blink-182 stuff, you know? <laughs> so they're creating a brand of collectibles. And is this based on a specific artist's work? Because it is a unique art style. Is this like a specific art style that they are doing here that's appealing to people? Well, I think that I think the art is cool in general, and people reacted well to it. I think you see a lot of these PFP profile picture type projects happen. Some of the mm -hmm. art is really interesting. Some of the art is whatever. Um, I think the apes were Sort of first, obviously, it all just follows in the in the footsteps of CryptoPunks, and I think for for the OOOGs of you know of of blockchain and crypto and NFTs, CryptoPunks was it. But a lot yeah. of us who got in this year, we didn't have a chance to get involved in that from the beginning. So this is sort of our beginning, and I mm. think that like there's so much momentum and so much. Uh, heat in this space right now that like that collective force of people coming together has really, really, really helped transform this company, um, you know, with 
the board apes into into the stratosphere and and i can't stress enough how good a job that yuga labs has done with this responsibility of all the money they've been making and then staying true to the people who believe in them so it's uh, been how really are they making money did they just own a lot of the ten thousand, and they just are now selling them in lots is that what the sotherby thing is or is that somebody reselling it and they just no, let all ten thousand go I'm not so they let all 10,000 go from the initial mint. Ah. So they they sold out of the mint initially, which brings in, you know, a, a significant amount of money. I mean, and then I have well, to look at Well, it's like $250 it. per at the time. So a thousand would be 250,000, so they made 2.5 million, but this lot that's being sold at Sotheby's is going to be worth for, you know, 10 or 20 million. So they're making all of you rich, but it doesn't seem like they got rich. Yeah, but they get they get a cut of every single resale. Ah. That's the beauty. That's the beauty of all these NFTs and smart contracts. It, yes, it incentivizes everybody to play together and make mm. money together. So when you're cut into every transaction, what, do you know what they get of every transaction? Five percent, ten percent. Yeah, they get? it's either I, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but it's uh, it's one of five percent or ten percent. Um, mm. It's. It it, so that's brilliant. In other words, if they get everybody whipped into a frenzy about collecting these and participation in it, the more people who participate, it would be as if the Beanie Babies or Marvel Comics got included in the resale. You and I are fans of the Knicks. At some point, the Knicks said, we're going to start our own resale channel or the NBA did because they said, listen, all these you know ticket masters and everybody has their own ticket resale. We don't get any of the aftermarket. And then they got a piece of it where if you were a season ticket holder, you could resell your tickets through the Knicks and the Knicks would get a cut of it. And right. now that's all memorialized in smart contracts. Correct. Which is what should happen. <laughs> you would think the original and the artist would. So is there, I've heard that people are doing fractional ownership of this. Yep. So have you thought about taking your NFT and then selling 10% of it, uh, giving your wife back the $9,000 you spent on initially, and then giving her another 10 grand and taking her on vacation? Well, I've already, I mean, the NFT trade has been wild. So we've, we've, we've already made up that money, no problem. Um, in the last couple of months. Oh, did you sell your, your serum and your second monkey? I haven't sold my serum or my second monkey, but did you the, use your serum? I'm holding it right now. So hold, hold, you're holding so the serum. you didn't get I, a second monkey yet. You just have your serum and the potentiality have, of a second monkey. <laughs> I bought, I bought an M1 serum so that I could make a new monkey from my current monkey. So I ah. have a mutant monkey and my current monkey and my M2 serum all sitting on ice, not looking wow. for them to go, go anywhere anytime soon. But you find some liquidity elsewhere in NFTs that you don't care as much about. You buy oh. those, sell those at higher. So you keep stacking your ETH to play the game. So, which is just, all that this whole thing is, it's just, there's a lot of game theory in, in all. Yeah, what, what it was the game theory here now, which is, I would guess, this is like, there's a poker game you play that was called Guts, which is like, who can hold on to their chip the longest? It was like a crazy game I played mm -hmm. once in New York, where yeah. if you had it, you would decide to put a chip in your hand, everybody would put their hands out, you put your hand behind your back, you decide if you're going to put a chip and play your cards. If you have the chip in your hand, um, you are go you have guts and you have to match the pot if you don't have the chip in your hands uh you're you're folding and i got into this one time and uh i happened to have a good hand and i uh i won like six thousand dollars because we had to match the pot like three times it starts out with everybody's got a hundred dollars in the pot it gets quickly insane uh, but this is that is that this is like the prisoner's dilemma whoever gets off first and gets the money but then if you were to sell and take your couple of hundred grand and put a down payment on an apartment or a second home where I don't know what station you're at in life, you seem pretty successful, but uh, then you would feel really stupid if it goes to a million. 
Yeah. I mean, look, it's all, it's all about, I mean, look, a lot of the, the holders from CryptoPunks are kicking themselves for getting rid of their punks, right? And if history repeats itself, right? Like, mm-hmm. and this, this is one of the, the most important projects that, you know, is on chain with NFTs, then, you know, I'm, I'm in the camp of hold and see where it goes. I mean, look, this weekend alone, we're talking about money, right? Um, Farouk, who's a guy that's been an unbelievable spokesperson for NFTs and has built a brand on Clubhouse and Twitter. He, <laughs> he sent a tweet out, um, on Saturday night that Bored Apes for the mutant drop in one hour sold 92 million what? US dollars worth of mutants. 92 million US dollars worth of mutants. Wow. So yes. at any time they can basically gift their early members with a hundred million dollars or more. Well, Cause that, that was only that, what that's not traded. a gift. So that, that was, so they did the serums. Those were free, but in addition, uh, they also dropped a whole new version of apes. They dropped 10,000 mutant apes, uh, right? Which, which had a lower price point. What did those mutant apes go for? I think it was like 2.5 or three ETH each as wow. Well, so like they got that cost. money. So, so they, they got, got 10,000 so per exactly. They get all that money and then they also get a, ch- a chunk of all that secondary action that just goes nuclear as well. Oh my Lord. So, so they just printed a hundred million dollars. Correct. They, pr- yes. Like, I mean, it's, what is it's, happening uh, in the world? The, I, I, the approximate number that, that Farouk said was $163 million um, in that one mm. day because of the secondary action that were already happening on OpenSea across mutants and apes too. So 10,000 people came in and paid $10,000 each for yes to be part of this club. Some people, I guess, cynically would say multi-level marketing <laughs> type endeavor, I guess, collectibles would be it. What do you, what do you in your heart of heart look at this as? Like a gam as gambling or collecting or something new? All around the world, tech companies are innovating and driving returns for investors. Arcrowd analyzes companies across the global private market, selects those with the greatest growth potential, and brings them to you. Arcrowd's companies range from personalized medicine to cybersecurity to robotics to quantum computing and more. In state-of-the-art labs, startup garages, and anywhere in between, Arcrowd is identifying innovators so you can invest when growth potential is greatest, early, early in the life of the startup. Arcrowd's accredited investors have already invested over $1 billion in growing tech companies, and many of their members have benefited from their 46 IPOs or exits. Now you can truly diversify your portfolio by investing early in innovative private market companies at Arcrowd. So join the fastest growing venture capital investment community at arcrowd.com slash twist. Once again, arcrowd.com slash twist to join for free. You're a sneakerhead, right? I like am. you, Yeah. But sneakers never got crazy like this, right? You don't have an example of your sneakers going. Well, and- so what's interesting is that, uh, you know, as, as a person who's been in the sneakers for many, many years, um, my now most cherished sneaker is not a Nike somehow, even though I am a Nike fanboy and collector, it is an artifact sneaker collaboration with a guy named Jeff Staple, who mm. is an amazing New York streetwear designer that... It was his first NFT and it was a Uh a digital sneaker that you could then forge now into a physical, but that digital sneaker that I paid 500 bucks for 
four months ago where I was like, I am feeling this, like there's something going on here that just tells me this is right. That thing right this second is worth almost $30,000. Oh my Lord. It's, in, it's just insane. So, I mean, obviously, you know, there, there's certainly a bubble happening right now, but it's not necessarily a bubble that's going to burst. You know, people are coming into this space in droves. It's really interesting. It's really fun. I think more than anything, I think it's about community membership. And like, when you think about Yuga Labs as a startup, it's, it's a whole different way. Like they're never going to have to raise money institutionally or traditionally. They're the whole, their community is funding them. So it's just different and interesting. It, it's crazy in that way. When you think about it, you could, and I just had, um, one of these projects on that was doing music and they raised hundreds of millions of dollars, put it into a project somewhere in South or Central America. Nobody knows who's in charge of the project. They all are undisclosed. I mean, I wonder what the tax treatment of this is going to wind up being. When you sell it, it's a capital gains because it's art, I guess. It gets treated like that. I wonder what the Bored Apes company, Yuga Labs, I guess, yeah, it's not a security because you're not buying equity in the company. You're buying a piece of art. It's really interesting. But the art yeah. enables you to do something. Yep. Basically, your access pass. Imagine if Soho House had built out like a whole huh. different structure of integrations and events and free huh. things from their partners and, and stuff like that. It's sort of like that's how I as a, you know, start thinking about it. Not that it's huh. Soho House, but it's sort of just like this, this club that you can get into and be a part of. And, you know, I think the, the community element of this can't be. Um, where does the community manifest? Where does it manifest itself in clubhouse rooms on Twitter? Mm -hmm. It's like a Slack or something like that where people are hanging no, out. It, it's all Discord oh. and Twitter. So oh. just the, the Discord is where each one of these projects has their own Discord and you know these things. There's also a bunch of private Discords that you know are for smaller groups of people like-minded who meet on Twitter. But it, it's really like Twitter is driving a lot of the conversation here, and Discord is where it gets one layer deeper um, mm. and there's some really really heady and interesting things going on and just like any just like any you know thing where everybody and their mother gets involved there's going to be a lot of bad crap but there's also some stuff that's really 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 great and interesting where's this going tell me what, what what are people talking about what do they think the future of it is because when you have something that captures the imagination like this has it's going to be a lot of um yeah, people are gonna have a lot of ideas and you mentioned there could be some downside. So so unpack that for me. Upside yeah, and think, downside. I think look, the the downside is that a lot of people lose a lot of money because there are a lot of people who are invest who are quote unquote investors now and entrepreneurs putting their money in things, but they don't know how to properly um you know, figure out whether that's a good investment or not. And they're just kind of going by what other people say and following these like there's so much of what they call the pump and dumps where people you know, just really like all get together, to try and drive up the price and then it falls and to nowhere because there's nothing structurally keeping it up because there's, there's, you know. Yeah, coordinated insiders who got yeah. in early pumping and something up and then they're secretly correct. liquidating. So, so that's like, there's going to be a lot of people who lose a lot of money that way. But if you're strategic and smart, like, and you find the real entrepreneurs in the space the same way folks like you have found, you know, other types of um, businesses in the past as... <laughs> web one two evolved and changed yeah. the world right like i think that's that's where it's at and so those people are really pushing the boundaries of, of 
of how company structures are owned. And I think that that just incentivizes a whole different form of collaboration between creator and community that we haven't seen before. Um, and I That's didn't start thinking about- That's the thing I think is interesting. I look at it and yeah. I think, wow, this to me is like this new form of patronage for artists. So yeah. I do think that this one is off the rails and like probably giving one artist a hundred million dollars or hundreds of millions yeah. of dollars is probably unnecessary. But if this was a collection of artists and you thought, gee, people are making great art in the world, because I actually, this is one that I find the artwork appealing. Like I would actually put one of these apes on my wall as a piece of art, because I think it's kind of yeah. funky and cool. And I, it kind of is pleasing to me aesthetically, but artists had no way to get money or to build an audience, they were disintermediated through galleries, and there were these gatekeepers. Now, it would be super interesting if somebody could create their own auction house, like Christie's, that um, recruited artists and did all this for them or with them. I wonder if anybody's done that startup before. Well, maybe similar, you and I, I mean, should quit and do this. <laughs> like, it would be an interesting I, idea, right? Yeah, I mean, look, that that's pretty much there's a lot of that's been going on not on that level right i think christie's and sotheby's have smartly gotten involved pretty early to sort of legitimize a lot of what's yeah. going on but um you know places like super rare and nifty gateway have been curating artists and being a platform to mm. build community around to like pick hand pick and say hey these people are great we think you should know about them and a lot of people's careers have taken off thanks to you know mm. their their success they've had on those types of on those types of platforms. Um, and one example just of like some a really interesting project that that I that is going on is a, a guy named Micah Johnson, who um, he's a former professional baseball player turned artist who was on the Chicago White Sox. Um, he has a he has a character called Aku. Um, and he is basically making a movie about Aku. Um, it's, you know, he, he talks about how it was like, his niece came up to him and was like, can can astronauts be black? And the whole concept of what he's doing is building a film and a persona around this character, Aku. And he really believes that like this. Oh, could wow. Be so it's been optioned for a film and uh, TV. The black right. astronaut so, Aku becomes yes. first. And so, NFU. Oh, my God, that's brilliant. So what he's doing is releasing a series of 10 NFTs that are videos, right? Mm. But it's basically your way of supporting his project, right? And so he is funding via community for his movie that he can then go it's and the new offer Kickstarter. out. This is 100%. the new Kickstarter. This is the new Kickstarter. Ah, it just clicked for me. It's genius. It, like there's just, there are, there's some so really genius. interesting things. So Jake, you should get a ape. You should buy one right now while we're on the show. You should come in and come and hop and be a part of this thing. It's, and what, it is, I should spend 150,000 on a monkey. What are you, you got it. Come on, let's go. No. Give me yeah, the next it's a, it's one. A, give me the next one I can buy into. I want to be on the ground floor of the next one. Okay. Just D, you got, listen, you're now a friend of the show, Andrew, uh, and you're a foodie, right? And a Nick fan. Well, I would never, I would never qualify myself using the F word because we're, we're like, come on. I'm, I'm, I'm an enthusiast, you know. I'm, okay. But like, yes, and I'm a huge Knicks fan. All right. So I'm a huge diehard Knicks fan for a long time. I actually came out for the playoff games, which was unbelievable. It was like the first. Those were, those were some of the best moments. I truly, Have like you, that you first game. Have you those two games? I was at both of those first oh two my games. God. Were it was incredible, right? Like <laughs> to be vaccinated and have no mask and screaming. Dude, I'm and Trey nuts. Young is killing me, but. I, we made such great moves. I mean, how excited are you for 33 days from now when we see Knicks playing basketball? Fournier I'm, and Kemba and our original crew locked in. 
I just can't believe and very excited about the fact that we can sit here and be excited about Knicks basketball. It's going to be so <laughs> it's going to be the greatest. I mean, I'm I'm putting us at 44 wins, 44, 45 wins. I think we'll be fifth or sixth seed. I think we got a shot of getting to the second round. And you got to think Dame and other people are looking at this progress and going, hmm, that's a pretty good squad uh, playing in New York. Uh, it's electric. All right, listen, uh, great to meet you. Thanks for educating us. And uh, let's hang soon. Maybe when the season starts, we'll get a meal and uh, then uh, go catch a Nick game. Sounds good, man. All right, man. Uh, DM me, me when you got the next one you think is going to be hot and then I'll buy into it. I'll get like 10 FTs or something. All right, like we, can, we can do a little side thing. I can give you a whole bunch of things that Just, are yeah, interesting. Slide into my DMs. Up. I got you. I'm following you now. Well, we're right. going to get you. We're going to get you on an ape, though. Get That's me on the happen. next thing. Get me on the next All thing. Right. Or somebody wants to get me in on the ape thing at a good price. Let me know. <laughs> All right. Talk to you soon. Cheers. What would you do with an extra 15 hours every week? For a lot of leaders, there's a moment where you realize that you are in your own way. Delegating to someone can be intimidating, especially if you don't know how to do it, right? And that's exactly where Belay comes in. Belay wants to help business leaders by revolutionizing productivity with their virtual assistant services. Imagine how your leadership could transform if you didn't have to worry about reading every email and scheduling every call yourself. And you had more time, energy, and focus to work on things that can 10x your business. Working with SMBs is Belay's specialty, but they also service C-suite executives from Maui Gym, Chick-fil-A, and more. You'll get a free copy of Rise Up and Lead Well, How Leveraging an Assistant Will Change Your Life and Maximize Your Time. It's written by Belay's CEO, Trisha Shortino. So here's your call to action. Get back to focusing on what matters, growing your business, and leave the rest to Belay. Just text TWIST to 55123 for your free copy of Rise Up and Lead Well today. Just text TWIST to 55123 for your free copy of Rise Up and Lead Well. Okay, and now here is Rachel's interview with Nicole from Harlem VC and how she broke in. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming on today, Nicole. This was really exciting for me. So let me get this straight. You're a senior associate at Harlem Capital and you focus on deal sourcing, due diligence and platform development. Is that correct? Yes, that awesome. is correct. Yeah. So can you break down for the audience what Harlem VC is and maybe your guys' mission? Sure, sure. sure. And uh, thanks for, for reaching out and uh, having me on the show. I'm super excited to do this today. Um, so Harlem Capital is a diversity focused early stage fund. Uh, we invest in women and people of color. And we just started investing out of our fund two of 134 million um, after wrapping up our fund one of 40 million um, earlier this year. And so we invest at the siege stage um, across all sectors. Uh, we write checks of about 750K to 2 million for 10% uh, plus ownership. And as a firm, our overall mission is to change the face of entrepreneurship by investing in a thousand diverse founders over 20 years. Um, and our current count is 40 of that thousand. So we're just getting started, but we are looking for people to uh, join our journey. That's awesome. Well, you got to start somewhere and it's great that you guys are really being the change. That's incredible too, that you guys are investing in those groups. I wasn't super aware of the lack of diversity in venture capital until I read The Moment of Lift by Melinda Gates. And I actually tweeted about it because I was so shocked before coming to this team. At launch, I actually did a venture capital fellowship and all the partners were men. Um, and we did have one person of color as our partner, but we didn't really invest in a ton of women. And there was only one 
person that I really stuck out to me as being a female founder that I really connected to. And when I mm. read this, this statistic, it just totally brought into perspective how important it is to have like, like people like you and the whole Harlem team. Um, and the statistic was only 2% of VC partners are women and only 2% of VC money is going to women founded ventures. And it does note that women of color are severely represented amongst even that percentage. So you guys are killing it. That's really awesome. And I'm super happy that we had somebody on the show that is advocating for those things. So before Harlem VC, what was your journey? Yeah, so so my story before Harlem Capital. So I was, I'll take you back to the, the very beginning. So I was uh, born and raised on Long Island. Um, I spent my entire life there um, until I moved into New York City uh, to attend Columbia University. And it was there that I really uh, got to know myself and realized what I was interested in and where I wanted my career to go. And it became actually quite apparent that I was not a reading and writing person. Like my brain did not work that way. I was far more of the numbers and math person. And I, you know, I like to use the analogy that give me a one page paper and I would be in the library like all night crying. But if you gave me a 10 page problem set, I would be able, I would be like calm, cool, collected. And so obviously learning that I realized I should major in something that caters to, to me. And I ended up majoring in econ math. Um, and with that major being in New York City, um, uh, I ended up taking the finance path, right? So my junior summer, uh, at Columbia, I interned in investment banking and subsequently signed, uh, to join full time. And so I joined post grad. Um, I joined RBC Capital Markets in the TMT group, tech, media and telecom. And I spent four years there actually in banking, uh, which was, was quite a, a long time. And, I went analyst to associate there and I realized, you know, I liked the work uh, within finance, but I didn't like the culture or the mission. And so that's sort of what led me uh, right into Harlem Capital. That's awesome. So I definitely feel like there are multiple paths into VC. A lot of people that I know were previous founders or like yourself uh, were in that banking situation. But for you, I know it's a little bit different, the actual job process. And this is actually how we ended up finding you, which was on Twitter. And I'm going to ask Justin or whoever's editing this video to throw up this screenshot because I think it's incredibly interesting. You posted a tweet of two slideshows and the tweet said, breaking into VC is hard. Finding ways to differentiate yourself is hard. When I was looking to break in, I knew Harlem Capital was where I wanted to be. But how did I do it? I created a presentation showing HCP exactly where I could add value on day one some snippets below. And then you included those two presentation slides. And I thought that was awesome. Can you talk to me first off, explain why it's really hard to get a job in VC to the audience? Yeah, so I, you know, I think it's, so for me, I wanted to, to break into VC, you know, for, for a couple of reasons, which I can imagine that some people would relate to this as well. And, you know, coming from a, a banking background, um, you know, a lot of people put, put blinders on, as I like to say, and take the traditional finance path without ever sort of stopping to think what they actually wanted to do. So, you know, they would go investment banking to private equity into business school. Um, and when I was in that position, I wanted to be intentional about my career. I did not want to go in something into a career that, you know, I, I wasn't passionate about. And in VC, you know, a lot of people love what they do. 
They're super passionate, right? Founders are building something that they believe in and investors want to fund them, right? And so everyone wakes up wanting to do their job. And, you know, I think in a lot of industries, that's not the case, right? And, you know, especially in banking, I mean, it's not always the case, but I doubt you can, uh, most bankers truly love what they do. Um, and so, you know, for me, I came across Harlem Capital on LinkedIn. Um, and one of my, one of my connections one day randomly liked the announcement of their fund one, um, close. And I remember reading the article and becoming completely obsessed with the firm and the mission. Um, it was like in that moment, I realized that's what I wanted to do. It, it, everything seemed to align for me. Um, being, you know, doing VC at Harlem Capital married like two things that I was super passionate about, which was finance, um, which can be quite soulless, unfortunately, <laughs> um, and making an impact, investing in diverse founders. So it gave me the, the best of both worlds. Um, and so, you know, for me, like other people, I think they just want to be in an industry that is exciting, right? And VC is the, you know, epitome of exciting. You're building the next big companies, right? You're building the next Uber, Lyft, Slack. Um, and so I think that's probably why it makes it hard, right? For a lot of people to break in is there's more demand than there is jobs. Um, and so I, that, that's my guess as to why, you know, why it's so difficult to, to break in. So let me get this straight. Did you see the LinkedIn job posting and then just send them these presentation? Or, or was it something like you slid into someone's DMs and sent yeah. them to him? We had yeah. um, the Harlem Capital founder on actually, Henri Pierre Jacques on episode 1183, which was super cool to have on. And that was the first time I heard about Harlem Capital. So did you send him your presentation on Twitter or something? No. So, so what ended up happening is after I saw the LinkedIn post and became completely obsessed, I, um, you know, I, I realized that I wanted to be there. Um, and they offer a pretty extensive internship program and fellowship program. And so I started doing tons of research on VC, started doing tons of research about Harlem Capital, um, and reached out to previous interns to see their experience. And I applied for, for the internship and I, I, Fortunately, um, was able to get into the internship, um, their summer 2020 cohort. And so it was there that I spent, uh, 10 weeks doing the internship. And then I went into a 10 week fellowship with them in the fall of 2020. Um, and what ended up happening is, you know, I, I realized that I was in love with Harlem Capital and the mission. I, I truly wanted to be there. Um, and I, during, Harlem Capital does a pretty extensive uh, review process as well, feedback process for their interns. And so we have a mid midterm feedback and final uh, feedback. And so for my fellowship, I had been there for, you know, whatever it was, 15 weeks. And I was like, I'm going to create a presentation to show them exactly why they should hire me, prove to them that I am the person that should be in this position. And I decided I was going to send it during my midterm feedback. And so I was like, I sent it to Henri because he was my pairing at the time for the um, internship or the fellowship rather. And I said, along with the midterm feedback, I would like to discuss this presentation on why you should hire me full time. So that, that's how that sort of went down. And um, I'm happy to, you know, break, go into the presentation more um, and give the listeners a bit more uh, info on that. Yeah, I guess you have also been kind of noting on different ways 
to kind of break into VC. And I think that Jason would love to hear more about that as well. Um, what struggles have you seen in the industry in terms of applying and gaining these almost entry level positions into venture capital? You did mention them in two of your other tweets, breaking into VC tip number three and breaking into VC tip number two. Um, but I'd love to hear more on that as well. So I think, you know, VC is a network game, right? And so the skill that you should have is just learning to network. Like the single most important thing is networking. And so I think gaining those entry level positions is difficult because you're not established within the VC industry. And so within VC, you utilize your community for everything from sourcing a deal to diligence to port go help to hiring and everything in between. And so the bigger your network is, the easier being in VC will be and getting a job in VC. And unfortunately, in the early days of your career, you just don't have those networks built out. And, you know, my advice to anybody who wants to get into the industry is, you know, start building that network before you land a job in VC. And probably that networking will get you the entry level job into VC, but you have to be willing to put the time in. And you know, I like to say, like, remember, you know, the industry is small and mm -hmm. every interaction is a chance to create a new relationship and you have to be intentional about it. And so I think that was probably the hardest thing for me as well. Breaking in is, you know, I had the skills to do it, but did I have the right people I could contact? Did I know, you know, who I could go to to diligence a deal or where I could source a deal? And so network, everything is about networking and community. And as you know, an entry level um, investor, that's difficult. And so you have to build up sort of that community. It's so funny because in college, you learn how to write a great resume, an awesome cover letter, but there's not an entire class on networking. And honestly, every yeah. job I've gotten out of college so far has not been on my resume or on a CV or anything like that. It, I agree. It's all about networking. You also mentioned operating like a VC in your tip number two tweet that I saw. What does it mean to operate like a VC? Yeah, so this is interesting. And, and one way that I think people could stand out in interviews and networking is, you know, people are taking the time, people in VC are taking the time to network with you, which is great, but you need to add some sort of value, right? If you operate like you're in VC already by understanding their investment thesis, deals that they like, things that they like to see, you can get on the phone with them, not only ask them questions about VC and themselves, but you can also say, also, here's a company I think you should look at. You know, I've been following it for three months. I love the founder. Let me send you a bit about it and tell you why I have conviction on this deal, right? And so that's what I mean by operating like you are in VC already, right? If you were in an investing position, uh, you would do that, right? That's how a lot of networking calls go, right? You, you have a conversation, you talk about the market, you know, you talk about what you're up to, what you're interested in. And then you share some deals, right? And you say, oh, by the way, I, I know your, your thesis and here's who's raising, right? So, so making sure that you are a part of the industry already is, is, is a way that you can just differentiate yourself and adding value to that person. They'll remember you, right? It's just, it's not just another networking call. It's, wow, this person shared a deal that I'm going to take a look at. Yeah. What are the top skills that you have that you think really help add value to Harlem Capital? Yeah. So I think, you know, every VC needs to be curious, right? Every investor needs to be curious. And I'm an incredibly curious person. And 
I'm a people person, right? I love chatting to people. And so I think being curious and being able to network, like I said, add value to any VC firm. And I believe that I have those skills. And so I think I'm able to provide, you know, not only those skills, but a different perspective as well to Harlem Capital. And in my presentation, actually, I was saying to them, um, you know, I, I showed them where I thought they had gaps in their firm and how my past experience and my lived experience could fill those gaps. And one of them was that I am Latina and I identify as LGBTQ. And so for me, my perspective on things are different than the rest of the firm. And not only that, I can diversify your sourcing funnel, right? Using my network, which is unique to me. Um, and so I think, you know, on top of the traditional skills of being, you know, curious and love networking, you know, bringing my lived experience and how I identify to the table provides a different perspective as well. It's great that you put that in your presentation too, because I don't necessarily think those things would have come up in a traditional interview. And especially in interviews like venture capital, where I've seen a lot of things like case studies or uh, show us examples of your work. I feel like it's kind of difficult to kind of incorporate your personal life within the that process. So that was really cool being able to see see that. Um, do you have any other advice for the audience on hard skills that they should know before they want to break into venture capital? And I know that's really difficult because I feel like venture capital is like a giant umbrella of things and you already have given us two awesome things. But is there anything specifically like financial modeling or anything like that that you think would be really beneficial? Yeah. Yeah. So I think it depends, right? Because as you say, VC is broad, right? You no one VC firm is the same. In that, you know, you have early stage funds, you have industry agnostic firms, sector specific firms, you know, geographic focused firms. And so what I would say is before you can say the skills that you need to jump into the industry, you need to figure out your niche, right? Are you interested in early stage agnostic firms? Because that skill set is going to be slightly different than if you wanted to invest in, you know, series B um, biotech companies, right? And so what I would say is the first step is is figuring out where your interests lie. And once you figure that out, then you can cater the skills that you learn. I think from a fundamental level, you know, early stage, you don't need as much financial financial modeling. But if you were to go to that series B, you need that financial modeling, right? But what I would say from fundamental standpoint is you need to understand venture math. You need to understand, you know, dilution. You need to under, understand ownership. You need to understand all of those basic things within within VC to to be able to understand investments to see what's what makes sense, what doesn't make sense, what fits into an investment thesis. Um, and if you don't have those basics, it might be more difficult for you um, within the industry. I completely agree. And actually, when I was first interested in venture capital. I got the book from a mentor, The Secrets of Sand Hill, which is about A16Z. But I honestly, the book was pretty dense, didn't read it all. But at the end of the book, there's a glossary. And I used the glossary kind of like a dictionary for venture capital. So if anybody's listening to this and is really struggling with the acronyms, trust me, you have to check that out and Investopedia. They were my absolute best friends. Um, That's it's great that you brought that up. Um, do you see a big difference between maybe the Gen Z 
versus millennial investors that are coming into this space because I feel like venture capital as of late has really blown up as we've seen. There's been that incredible amount of investments, especially over the past year. Yeah. You're saying, is there a difference between Gen Z and millennial investing? Yes. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I definitely think, I definitely think there is. Um, one, one thing that I notice is that Gen Z is using social media a lot more. Right. Twitter has blown up in the VC industry and not only, you know, as a way to get yourself known, but also for business advice, for learning more about industries, for all things VC. And I think Gen Z has really captured that within social media. Um, so I'd say that's one thing that I think is, is different. Um, you know, social media is a strategy, not, you know, it's not frowned upon. And I think in finance, a lot of people don't like to be in the limelight like that. Um, but, you know, Gen Z has really thought this is a strategy and this will help me grow as a person. Um, and then I think just in general, Gen Z has had a big effect on industries, right? It's, it's a generation that is involved. And so, you know, you look at all the different social apps that are blowing up and everything Gen Z touches, right, is, is changed. Um, and they just have a different mindset, right? They just have a different life mindset, investing mindset. What they care about is different. Um, and so I think they're just touching every industry. And so it, you know, it's changing the investment landscape. It's funny because as a Gen Z growing up, my parents were like, don't post too much of your life on the internet. And now that yeah, I've kind of switched exactly. into this space for like, have opinions on the internet. Like, how do we know what you're interested in or what exactly. you stand for if you don't? And uh, exactly. I think that's a huge differentiator between, you can always tell when someone maybe isn't that hip with social media or isn't a Gen Z <laughs> slash early yeah. millennial with how they interact on Twitter. So I think that's definitely a great, yeah. a great piece of advice. Yeah. And even here at This Week in Startups, I've helped the team start a, a TikTok page. And it's it's been an interesting experience, yeah. but it's yeah. so important to yeah. branch out, branch out on definitely. that platform, um, on any platform, especially in terms of kind of creating a consistent pipeline? Like, why not make your voice heard to get Definitely. the most amount of people to hear about you? Definitely. I mean, your network is just 10 times through social media, right? And like, even even I'm on this podcast because of social media, right? So it, you know, it just, it, your reach is extended far more than you could ever imagine through social media. I mean, at Harlem Capital, we did an analysis of our intern pool. And of the 6,000 applications that we've gotten, 10% are international and we don't even wow. do international deals yet. So like it just goes to show you the power of social media and the reach that you're getting there, right? Um, so it's, it's incredible. And I think Gen Z has realized that and has really, you know, held on to it. So to kind of close now and to continue the conversation about making your voice heard, especially around the world through way of social media, I'd love to conclude with your podcast that I saw the More Equity podcast um, from Harlem Capital. I believe you host it, correct? Yes. Yes. That's with, awesome. With, um, yeah, with Gabby Cazzo on my team. That's so cool. So what are the goals there for that podcast? It's honestly just to... So, so Harlem Capital's mission is to change the face of entrepreneurship. But in order to change the face of entrepreneurship, we have to change the... the cha we have to change the face of investing as well, right? We need people to invest in things that they identify with. So we need... In diverse investors. And so, like I said, we have six, we have an extensive intern program. We've gotten over 6,000 applications and we can't give all of those diverse individuals 
a spot at Harlem Capital, but we want to make sure that they are in the VC ecosystem. And they've historically and systemically have been pushed out. And so what we're trying to do is demystify VC, right? Demystify the interview process, get those diverse people in the doors so that we can not only, you know, change the face of entrepreneurship, but change the face of investing. And I think, you know, Harlem Capital, we're growing, but we're, you know, we need help, right? We can't change the whole ecosystem. And a a small part in doing that is, is by getting, you know, the diverse candidates that we get in the doors of other VCs. And so that podcast, the goal was for people who are interviewing and don't know where to start, you know, there, there's a start, right? And we, you know, you can look at all the resources we cite, get on Twitter. Um, and so that was, that was the goal. That's awesome. How many episodes are you in right now? How, many, pod- the- how many podcast episodes have you done so far? So I, I don't typically host the More Equity podcast. I've done a season um, with Gabby and Kelly, which are the, where Kelly has left the firm now, but um, the two senior associates at the firm, I interviewed them. And then I did the demystifying VC. And hopefully we'll be on uh, some more as we, as we roll out new seasons. That's awesome. I cannot wait to listen to that. And I'm also looking forward to re-listening to Jason's talk with the Harlem Capital founder on episode 1183. I'm just going to repeat that again for everybody because it was super awesome to hear about you guys. Thank you so much for being on. I think this conversation is going to be really beneficial for anybody else looking to break into venture capital, especially with how things have been changing so quickly with the amount of investments increasing and social media really taking over the space. Thank you so much. Is there anywhere people can find you? Maybe your Instagram handle, your uh, Twitter handle? Yeah. So if you you can find me on Twitter at Nick underscore DiTomasos, that's N-I-C for Nick, um, and on LinkedIn. Um, if you are looking to break into BC, I am happy to be an advocate for you. So please, please reach out. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on, Nicole. 